Welcome to Lesson Impossible, an exploration of educational innovation. I'm your host, Aviva Levin. As always, I'm chatting with educators of all types who are on the forefront of pedagogy or making effective changes to old practices. Your lesson, should you choose to accept it, is to explore the possibilities of standards-based assessment to further student learning. The special agent assigned to help you with this task is Tyler Rablin of Washington State. First of all, I wanted to thank all of my listeners for their patience as Lesson Impossible's release schedule has been fairly sporadic. I have not abandoned you, and in fact, I have a lot of great interviews that I can't wait to share including a series of episodes focusing on using improv in the second language classroom that will have corresponding resources on the Lesson Impossible blog. As for the blog, it is continually updated with resources for ELA, ELL, and foreign language learning classes, with examples in English and French. For June, I'll be sharing some filler activities for when grades are in but students still need to be engaged, as well as resources for Pride Month. This episode's guest, Tyler Rablin, is clearly passionate about assessment and how it can be used as a teaching tool and not just a reporting tool. Regarding the term standards-based assessment, in his blog, Tyler writes, standards-based grading does not mean you are grading students based on the Common Core state standards or whatever your state has adopted. I really strongly believe that these standards are processes in which we engage in with our students and not things that we put into the gradebook. In our conversation, we discuss what this looks like and why it works well for both teachers and students. As always, you can follow the link in the show notes to find links to Tyler's blog and social media and to the resources we discuss. Moreover, you can find links to episodes 27 and 37 on Meaningful Curriculum and Going Gradeless, respectively, which I think pair well with this episode. Good luck on your not-so-impossible lesson with Agent Tyler Rablin. All right, Tyler, welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to be talking with you today. And as we get started, maybe you could tell us who you are and what your role in education is. Yeah, um, super excited to be a part of this. So my name's Tyler Rablin. I'm out in Sunnyside, Washington, uh, so like Central Washington State. And for the past five years, I've been uh, an instructional coach and just teaching one class period a day. And just made the call last year to switch back into the classroom full time. So I'm super excited to get to do that and be kind of, you know, there's value in being a coach, but it wasn't what made me happiest in being education. So I'm excited to be back in the classroom full time. And, and I spend some time outside of that getting to work with schools uh, outside of my district, specifically around assessment is kind of my, my passion and kind of for me, my, my philosophy of education, like assessment is the core and kind of the starting point for meaningful change. So um, yeah, that's a little bit about what I do and, and what matters to me in education. And when you are in the classroom, what student body are you teaching, what level and what subject? So I, I teach high school ELA and actually requested to have all of my classes be freshman classes next year. Uh, I started teaching like the upper grades and just found that the energy of freshmen was 
fun for me. So that's that's what I do. I teach ninth grade ELA uh, pretty much all day next year. Your philosophy is assessment is the core of learning. Do you mind going a little bit more into that of what that means to you? Yeah, uh, I, I think a lot of it's kind of my realization of how important assessment practices are really started with like in my second year of teaching, you know, I feel like first year I was just like surviving, like doing anything I could, staying afloat. And then second year, I started kind of reflecting on what I was doing and looking for better ways to do it. And so, you know, I'd I'd hop on Twitter or I'd go read articles and and see all these really cool ways that teachers were teaching and the, the projects students were doing and sort of that the I guess the not surface level, I don't that sounds bad, but the 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 in your face, hey, here's all the cool stuff you could do. And then I would bring it to my classroom and try it. And like I would have this great project set up and a student would just be like, is this graded? Like that was the first question, no matter how cool that it was going to be or how deep I wanted the learning to be, like it was always, is this graded? Or, you know, I'd hand back something and I would want the student to, you know, really look at what they, the feedback they got and and move forward. But every time I put a grade on it, that conversation stopped and I could see the student label themselves based on that grade. And so it really hit home for me that, you know, when we're talking about like even when it, when it comes to equity for me, assessment, if we're grading students in a way that averages scores over time, the student who comes in with the lowest scores or, or a missing skill set is going to be penalized for that long term. And, you know, there's, there's no way around it aside from really looking at our assessment practices and asking ourselves kind of the big two things that I've been thinking about it. Does it inspire hope and does it build confidence? And, you know, assessment I found is, is the starting point for a lot of that, or I guess really the starting point and also what it all comes back to. Um, so that, that's why assessment to me is so key is it's really the foundation that everything builds off of in terms of a learning community and a culture in the classroom and things like that. Yeah. I have been scouring your blog, teacher totter, uh, in preparation for this interview. And I love everything that I'm seeing. And the thing that kind of stuck with me the most is uh, and I I'm, don't mind. I'm going to read your words back to you, which is <laughs> um, most of the conversations I hear around assessment center on either isolated practices such as no late penalty or prioritize recent scores or vague generic concepts. Use standards based grading, or we should focus on mastery. Um, and then you you talk about your struggle is you change your grade book. It didn't, ta- but you didn't change the type of assessments that you used. Mm-hmm. And so if you didn't have late penalties, you didn't then replace it with like good methods of accountability. And then you have this graphic of three people juggling fire together. And <laughs> I like, I was just mesmerized by it because I was like, oh my God, that's exactly what it is. And that like, that torch is mastery grading. And that torch <laughs> is what happens when like a student is gone for two months. And maybe you could talk about your journey of where you started and then the pieces that got you to where you are. And then we can talk a little bit about how you juggle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I started, I'm, I'm trying to think where my, my love for assessment started. Really, it started, and I, I can picture my, the, the end of my second year of teaching. We still had to bring like the physical copies of our grade books down to the office. And my classroom was on like the total end of the, the school. And so, um, 
I was walking and it was a long walk. And I remember like looking down at my grade book and having this moment of looking at it and just going, I don't know what any of this means. Like I, <laughs> if I were to give this to a teacher next year and, and say like, what did the, what does the student need to learn? There was just like, they knew basically whether or not they did assignments and how they did on those assignments. And so like really the only thing I was passing off if another teacher were to look at it is which of my students are most compliant, right? Like that, which of the students did the tasks that I wanted them to do. But in terms of like really being clear about what are students learning? Like, where are they at in that process? What's the next step for them? You know, I, I don't think any party involved, me as the teacher, the student as the learner, caregivers as the home support, like, I don't think anyone could look at that grade book and understand the value in it or really see if there was value in it. And so that was a, a big turning point for me of, of realizing that like grades are communication, and not just, you know, the final grade itself, but feedback, things like that, I'm, I'm communicating. And I had to stop and really ask, like, what am I communicating? And is that really what I care about most? And so that was the beginning of that journey for me of, of, you know, I didn't know what to do. I was just kind of stuck. But I knew that something needed to change. And, and I think the second moment that really still sticks in my head for me of, of questioning assessment practices and grading in general is I had a student my second year of teaching again. Apparently, that was a really transformative year <laughs> for me. And, and she was always reading a book, like in class, always reading a book. Half the time, it was the book I wanted her to read. Half the time, it was something else that she was loving reading. And then it came time to write. And she hardly ever did any of the assignments I was asking for. But she was just this incredible writer. Like, I, I just remember reading all of her work and thinking, like, this is really beautiful. She could capture images better than any student I think I've ever taught since. And it came towards the end of the year. And, you know, because she was more interested in what she was reading and because she was more interested in the other stuff she was writing, and my gradebook at the time was still very compliance-focused on, are you doing the specific tasks I asked you to do? she was in like the single digits in terms of her grade percent coming towards the end of the term. And I sat down with her and I just said, um, you know, like what, what, what's going on? Like this doesn't show really whether, you know, your skills as a reader and writer. And she said, Oh no, it's okay. I've always been bad at English. And I just remember like listening to that and thinking like, this is what our grade, the message our grades send to students is like, if you don't do what I want you to do, it, it doesn't matter. It's not good enough. It's not valuable. And I sat down with my principal at the time, fantastic principal, and I kind of laid this out there for him and, and just said, you know, what should I do? And, and his response to me was, has she shown you that she knows what she needs in order to be successful moving forward? Like he just really simplified it. That's my dog. <laughs> he really simplified it down to that of does, does she have what she needs? Has she learned what she's supposed to learn? And, and the answer was yes. And he said, you know, give her the grade that reflects that. And that was really eye-opening for me. I, I felt like grades had to be, you know, like purely objective and you had to have points and they had to take certain tests. And really what it came down to is, do I have enough evidence of learning from the student to say whether or not they know what they need to know moving forward? So that's really where it started for me. Uh, I had a moment in my second year of teaching where I had sent home 
a report or something that showed that a student was getting like 87.934%. And a parent came in to chat and they're like, what does this mean? Like, what is this? And I was trying to explain. And then I just had this moment of being like, I actually have no idea. And I remember just being like (laughs) very, very honest to the parent and being like, you know, I'm just still trying to figure out what it means. I'm working Mm -hmm. on it, but I'm not sure yet either. (laughs) We just kind of looked at each other and he, he he was like, well, you know, as long as you're thinking about it, like I'm not worried about my kid. I was just really surprised by getting this. And I was like, okay, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and even too, like that, that comes up a lot when either a student or a parent asks, you know, like, well, what do I do to raise my grade? Right. If you've got a student with like an 88 and they want an A like that, that always, that's my answer to that question is usually a good gauge for me as to how aligned I am with, with learning in terms of my assessment practices. Cause if my answer has to be, do these assignments, right? Like do more work equals more points. I know that I'm like pretty off base from what I generally want to be able to say of, you know, my ideal answer for that is, hey, let's look at where you're at in your learning and figure out what skills we need to focus on. And and so that, that you know, I feel like you said that was your second year of teaching. Something with the second year, it must be like the most transformative year for everybody, apparently. Um, yeah, because the first year you just cry every day. And uh, you're just like figuring out what to do with your hands in the classroom. (laughs) And then, yeah, I think the second year you really fall back on the way that you were taught and replicating that Mm -hmm. and then realizing where it fits and where it doesn't and how comfortable you are in the clothing of your former teachers. Mm -hmm. And then once you figure that out going forward, hopefully things get better Um, I know for me, it still took me a long time to get to a place where I was just breaking things down into skills and Mm -hmm. mastery. Were you able to, like, was your third year just completely different or was it a slow transformation? It it was a really slow transformation. So, and this is actually a lot of times when I'm kind of talking with teachers who, who ask, like, where do I start? It was one unit for me where I had one specific learning that I was looking for. Like there was one thing I wanted to focus on and I I just made, it was a paper spreadsheet and I I wanted to practice. This is the skill I'm looking for and I'm going to record scores over time with that one skill. And so it was very isolated, one skill, one unit, because when I looked at it kind of big picture of switching entirely to standards-based grading or to mastery-based learning, that was really overwhelming. And I think that's where a lot of teachers start. Like they just start knowing what the end goal needs to be. Um, and, and so that actually, I like I knew I needed to change, but I, I pumped the brakes on changing for so long because I was just really nervous about how big of a shift that was going to be. And so that that's kind of why I did the just one unit, one skill. Like I didn't even actually change that first step. I didn't even change my official grading practices of, you know, how it was weighted in the grade book or anything like that. All that stayed the same. I just wanted to practice recording student attempts at learning over time. Um, and, and, you know, even in that, it was really nice for me to see that and be able to then conversations with students were different. 
it was no longer, you know, here's how you did on assignment one, here's assignment two, here's assignment three. But hey, look, you started with threes and now you're up to fours, right? Like you're growing, you're showing, you're showing that you're learning. Uh, and so for a first step, like that's what I would recommend for everybody. Just make a spreadsheet, don't make it fancy, and just record student attempts at learning for a specific skill. How do you decide what those skills are? And then I'm going to back that up even a little bit more, which is just to to clarify, you identify skills for every assignment, you then break that assignment down into giving feedback on those specific skills. And then students get multiple attempts at those skills throughout the year because those skills are fundamental. They're not assignment specific. And that in, in the end, you look at trends and that determines their grade. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do you determine what those skills are going to be? Is it personal, departmental? So we, as a department, we do have a, we have a, a curriculum guide that has the, we use the Smarter Balance Claims and Targets, um, but it has them identified like which ones we're going to be focusing on. In terms of which ones I'm assessing, though, I take, so a lot of my work with standards, I I, I take the standard, which is just like, I, I view them as those are processes we engage in. They're not necessarily things that I'm assessing, but they're processes that as students, as learners, we should be engaging in. Um, and then the next step, sort of the next tier is where the power standards come in. And th- these are the ones that I'm going to really devote a lot of my time to. And there's a great, I don't actually know who started it. I feel like I should give someone credit. Um, but they, there's endurance, leverage, and readiness as sort of criteria for determining which standards get the most time. And so endurance, and I'm going to flip one, I know, uh, but usually endurance means I'm trying to think, yeah, how does it apply outside the classroom, right? So like I love character development and novels and there's some stuff that applies, but in terms of how well it applies to general society and how how much students are really going to need that, do they need to know indirect and direct characterization in their day-to-day life? The English teacher in me wants to say yes, but the reality is maybe not, right? (laughs) So that's a little lower on that scale. And then you've got, if that's endurance, you have leverage, which is... Like, how is it going to help across different content areas? So, you know, analyzing characters may not be super helpful in science, maybe in social studies, but, you know, citing evidence to support an idea, that's going to apply in a ton of different content areas. So if I see something that is really valuable in other content areas, that moves it up the priority list for me. And then the last one is, is readiness, which is, is the student going to need it moving forward within the same content area? Um, we just just making sure that we're not creating gaps in the standards that we're selecting at different grade levels. But that that's probably half of how I choose which standard we're gonna we're gonna focus on. I mean, the other half really comes down to when my students come into the room that year. As much as I want to plan and say this is what my students are gonna need, they're gonna walk in and they're gonna show me this is what we need. And at that point, um, it's it's not uncommon for me to change some of those those uh, power standards or whatever that we're going to focus on. When you're evaluating students, you're using the same criteria, the same rubric from assignment to, assi- to assignment. So they're, they're very familiar with it. So it always like citation and evidence citing always looks the same on the rubric, no matter what assignment it's going to be, or do you change it? It stays pretty consistent. 
Um, so I've started playing with, I, I actually have sort of two different views where I use rubrics to analyze tasks. And then my students actually work with learning progressions more. So the differentiation for me is like a rubric is for a specific task. What was the level of quality that I was seeing in terms of a specific uh, power standard? But what I've started shifting more towards is that's isolated to a task. And then the student uses learning progressions, which uh, it's, it's when, I, when I talk about it, it feels like it's not that big of a shift, but it's made a huge difference in my classroom. So instead of being more of a, a qualitative measure of judgment for an isolated task, a learning progression is a series of, of steps or a series of things that can be learned along the way towards becoming proficient in this skill. And, and the reason that I like that and have switched more to that is, you know, when I think about designing rubrics, so often the, the earlier levels in the rubrics, I don't even want to call them the bottom levels because I don't really, I've tried to shift my language around that. But the earlier levels carry a stigma and the language in it is oftentimes deficit focused, right? Like I struggle to analyze theme in a text and that's that level. And then the next level might be, you know, I, I can identify a theme, but I struggle to explain how it blah, blah, blah. Versus for a learning progression, if we're going to go back to that idea of using theme in literature, I, the first level is I can define theme in literature, right? And it's not necessarily a deficit mindset anymore, but it's a recognition of this is an important step. It's something that has to be learned along this journey. And, you know, you, you accomplish something. Being at level one is not bad. It's this is the first step in a journey. Uh, like I use the analogy a lot with my students. If, if we're running a race and the race just starts and you're at the, the, you know, the beginning of the race and someone is like critiquing you for not being done or critiquing you for not finishing that journey yet, that doesn't make any sense. It's just, it's not bad to be starting out in a certain spot. It's just the reality of where we're at. The important part is where do we go next? What are we doing next? And so those learning progressions are really targeted at each level is a specific concept or a piece of the puzzle that they're learning along the way. So it's always, if I'm at level two, I know exactly what I, what the next thing I'm going to learn is. And that's, you know, it's not always linear. I won't pretend it's super neat and clean and tidy. Um, but those learning progressions are really big picture when I step back and when we start talking about grade conferences and, and determining the student's final grades, it's those learning progressions that we use to say, you know, the rubric helped us understand how we did on the task. But in terms of the learning progression, where are you at in your learning? I really like that metaphor of the race and being critiqued for not having finished when you're just starting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Though I guess the question becomes if you've got a student that's coming into your uh, grade nine classroom and they've already, you know, become a track champion and they're at the end of the learning progression from the beginning, what do you do with that student to provide engagement and challenge? So, and, and this is actually one of the things that I've liked about switching my grading approach is before you know, because my grade book was super task dependent, like the student would obviously know everything, but I was like, well, I'm putting the next assignments in the grade book and that's going to drop your grade. So you have to do those. And, you know, it was just like, we're stuck. But when I switched more towards 
recording progress based on student learning and calculating final grades based on overall proficiency in those standards. If a student showed early on that they were proficient, I could say, hey, like you've shown me these things in these next two assignments. Uh, I, I want you, I don't want you to do those. I want you to do, I, I talk with my students about, I, I use the term reading and writing because it just comes up, but I, I use the terms uh, powerful communication and a critical consumption. And I, I tell my students, like, I don't want you to do those assignments. I want you to do something where you either communicate an idea powerfully or where you consume something critically. And it's fun. I love in those moments getting to see, and you know, it's not just the students who are already proficient that get to do it. Everybody at some point gets to do that. But it's fun to see how they take their passions. Like I have a ton of students that are that love anime, and a lot of times they'll start bringing that in and say, like, "Oh, I watched an episode last night, and here's how I saw, you know, a symbol emerge in, in throughout the course of the episode, or something like that." And it's, you know, we're always looking for spaces for students to be themselves in our classroom and bring their whole self in. And it's those moments where I can say, "You got it." Right? Like you've shown me you know this. Now I want you to go do something that really, really matters to you and that brings in your passions. Um, and you know my my complaint a lot was with with strict curriculum guides or pacing guides, it can be hard to find the space for creativity. And so changing your assessment approach to really focusing on learning and being able to identify when a student's proficient creates some of that space that I feel like is missing sometimes to say, you know, you got, you're, you're done with that part of the curriculum. Now you have this time that's yours. What are you going to do with it? Um, and often it's open-ended. Sometimes, you know, that you'll run into a student who maybe isn't interested in doing something at that point. And, you know, there's a little bit of me that's like, you know, that's okay. Like, I'm not going to force you to do it, do something you're interested in, work on another class that you have more passion for. Um, but it, it is fun. Once students start doing it, a lot of times I let them present to the class or show the class what they you know worked on or learned about. Um, and, and once they start seeing that happen, it does get a little bit more buy-in because students are realizing, oh, I get to show the class like something that matters to me or something that I'm interested in. Um, so yeah, so that's that's what if a student gets all the way to the end of the learning progression or you know is proficient in that progression. It, it's nice to be able to give them the space and, and, and just see what they do with it. Like kids are really cool. And sometimes they don't get a chance to express that in the classroom. And you do grade conferencing every two to three weeks. Mm -hmm. Like you're discussing their progress with them continually. It's not like you're gathering data, gathering data, and then spitting something out. This is like a very collaborative grade creation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, that approach is pretty scaffolded for me. So the first time I tried grade conferences, I did almost like what you were describing at first of like, I just collect all this data. And then at the very end, I try to go through all of it with the student. And it was like overwhelming and took too much time. And nobody really knew what was going on, me or the student. And so I've started now doing the shorter, more frequent ones. So, you know, during a unit, if we've got four skills we're working on, we'll conference a couple times about those skills They'll determine their score, where they're at. And then the nice thing about that is then when it comes time for the big grade conference at the end of the term where the student really says, here's the final grade I deserve, we've already talked about all those individual skills along the way. So it's just a, I found it to be a much more efficient process than what I was trying to do before. And I think a lot of people, the first time you jump into grade conferences, it's, 
overwhelming because we try to do too much at the same time. And I had to learn to kind of make make smaller bites so that I could actually chew them. When you switched your assessment, was that something that your colleagues switched with you? Or were you doing it individually? Did that cause any conflict in your department? So I, I feel really lucky. Um, I, I love, I'm super happy with the school I'm at now. But when I started, I was at a really small school. There were, there were four of us in the department. There was a freshman teacher, a sophomore teacher, a junior teacher, and a senior teacher. Wow. And so because of that, I was able to start making changes on my own without necessarily ruffling too many feathers because I was, you know, we still had a team, we still worked together, but none of us were teaching the same curriculum. None of us were assessing the same thing. So I, I felt like I had a lot of flexibility to make those changes on my own. And, and then it was kind of cool to see the snowball effect take place where, you know, as an English teacher, they realized I wasn't grading until 3 a.m. every night when I assigned an essay because I was just looking at a specific skill that we were working on, and that's all I had to grade on the essay. And so it was much faster for me. Or, you know, they saw that I wasn't always offering retakes on the same task necessarily. I was offering another attempt at it later on. And so that saved me some of the frustration of, you know, I still allow students to do retakes, but they know they have another attempt coming up. So they can just learn from it and move forward if they don't feel the need to go back and revise. So, And I, I think that normally happens in a school. You, there will always be people who see someone change and, you know, they critique, they make fun of, they think that's dumb, that's not going to work. But I feel like more often than not, there, there are pockets within schools where as soon as change starts happening, they perk up and they notice and they pay attention. And so at, that, at my first school, that's really kind of what happened. And it was fun to see that happen along the way. And, you know, I had my approaches and things that didn't go super well. And it was, it was really nice to not be the lone wolf in those moments and be able to have someone else who was trying things and sort of in the trenches of assessment reform with me to be able to say, hey, here's what I'm doing. Here's what's working for me. Maybe try it in your classroom. Um, so I, I think a lot of times it starts isolated, but will always be more effective if there's a team involved. I have uh, some scenarios I'd like to throw at you and, and how that fits in with your assessment philosophy. Mm -hmm. So there's a student, and if they're given five attempts at a skill, four of those attempts, they're just in that kind of like developing, emerging area, but then one time they really nail it and they really show competency is that at 100% then in your grade book? What I would probably do is sit down with that student and either have a conversation with them and sort of pick their brain about that skill to make sure that, you know, the, the four or whatever the, the uh, rubric you're using, whatever is proficient, that score that they got for proficient, I always like to have it supported by an additional data point that that you know, really makes it clear and convincing that that is an accurate data point. And so for me, if I would sit down with that student or give them another attempt to show their learning, and if they could do it again, then yeah, uh, that, you know, that my calculation is, is whatever is, I emphasize more recent and what is consistent more recently. And so if a student goes, I mean, they could go ones all year and their last two, three attempts, they get fours. 
that's the score that they get for that. I, I'm not going to, you know, penalize them again, going back to the race. I'm not going to penalize them for starting a race. Like I, I'm going to give them their time for here's how you finished. Here's how you did. To me, that's become a, you know, at first I just wanted it to be accurate. You know, I want, I want my grades to be accurate. Cause if there's a student that ends at proficient and started at, at beginning at a one, well, if I average those, it's not accurate, right? We're at a, what is it? A 2.5. I don't know, something along those lines for the average, if there's two of them. And, you know, that's not clearly communicating to the student an accurate depiction of their skill. But the other thing is that it, it creates, um, an inherent ranking system in my students where if you come in and start lower, you're going to stay lower. And if you come in and start higher, you're going to start stay higher. And I feel like that is the exact opposite of what school needs to be and should be. It should be a space where we say, like, I don't care where you started. I care where you finish. I care, I care about the journey along the way and the learning that happens. I'm not going to hold where you started against you. So for the student that, you know, ended the year showing proficiency, I, I would want verification of it with another attempt or a conversation. But then absolutely, that's the score that they, they earned. Well, I'm going to back this up. I'm making the assumption that if a student is earning ones throughout the year, then they are going to have to be held back to repeat the course or do some remedial summer school or something like that. Is that correct? And I, in an ideal world, I would loop up with my kids and 10th grade, we would just start working on that concept with them again. The reality for me is, um, with my grade calculations, a student can have a one and still move forward if they show proficiency or nearing proficiency and enough other skills to, to help me feel like they, they have hope to get caught up next year. The last thing I want to do is send a student forward knowing that they're not going to be successful. Um, and, and so, you know, like I said, ideally, I would love to be able to say, you, got, you have a one in this skill. That's what you're working on next year. It can't necessarily happen that way just because of the structure of school and the way things are. But um, for me, if they show overall that they have earned proficiency or demonstrated proficiency in most of the skills, then then they do move forward, even if they have a few that are are lower than I would like. And are you being expected to pump out a numeric grade? Yes. Yeah. So, um, and this is where my final grade is I use... I kind of, I harp on the, the practice of averaging scores over time. And I think that's how most final grades are calculated for me. And I'm, I'm trying to like, I'm actually like painting it with my hands. And I know that's so funny because it's a podcast and there's no way anyone will know what I'm doing. But if you were to picture like, you know, each, each row of a table is the skill. They've got different attempts going all the way along. And on the far right side of the table, are their final scores for each of the skills, their numeric grade is then an average of those. So it's not their scores over time. It's not old scores. It's the average of their final scores for each skill is how I calculate that, that final grade. So to kind of break it down, if the skill is, I'm going to go back to cite, citing evidence, and I've been given five attempts and my first three attempts, I, I got ones because I, I really wasn't there yet. And then my fourth attempt, I got uh, a, a three. And then the last attempt, like, man, I really nailed it. I got a four. 
then my score would be like a 3.5 because my last two in that skill, there would be an average of that. Yeah, um, unless I can get another attempt from that student or sit down and have a conversation. Um, Often, my goal is usually to try to avoid being between levels. Like, it's never worked out that way perfectly ever, but that's always my goal. So I try to avoid averaging those. Um, my, My ideal would be if that student did all ones and then a three and then a four, I want to give them another attempt to make it really clear where is their actual level. Um, and, and that's where those learning progressions come in. A lot of times, like if it's, you know, I can define theme, I can identify a theme in a text, I can, whatever it is, usually in that conversation, I have that learning progression with me and I can tell talking with the student, okay, they can define theme. So clearly they, they mastered, you know, uh, the level one, if they can, you know, if we're talking about a text we read and I can say, what is a theme and they can do that. Now I know, okay, clearly they know level two. Um, and so that's the other reason that I like those learning progressions is it with rubrics that are, you know, I, I feel like there are so, there's so much language in rubrics often that is imprecise of, I sort of know how to do this. I mostly know how to do this. I really know. (laughs) And like, how do you know which is which? Like, what is the definition of sort of that we're using? You know, like, it's just not clear, but by, by structuring a sequence of concepts, it then does become really clear for me as the teacher and for the student if they're self-reflecting or, or you know, reflecting with a peer of, do I know how to do this thing? Yes. Okay, then I'm, I can think about the next level. Do I know how to do, how to do this? Yes, then I can think about the next level. Um, so that clarity is really, and that's been just in the last couple of years that I've really tried to dig in and develop those for most of my skills. That has helped me a ton with determining those final grades and those those grading conferences too like it's it's made that conversation much easier for the student to have because it's tangible and clear as opposed to those imprecise terms and you know them saying well I sort of can do this oh I must be at this level like it's really nice to say can you do this thing yes or no is there a danger of with all this focus on assessment and having these grading conferences and bringing all of the assignments back to the uh, assessment rubrics, like, are you promoting assessment as the end goal versus learning? Or is that one in the same in your mind? I, ideally, it's one in the same. But, you know, I, I won't pretend that we don't exist in a culture that is obsessed with outcomes, right? And so as much as I want to say, hey, here was your here was your score on this. Let's look at how that where that is on the learning progression. It takes a lot of retraining and and a lot of conversation and a lot of, you know, showing students that there is hope for that to improve. They're not stuck with that score. Um, but it it does still and and it does still at, at times get to a spot where the students still become obsessed with, I'm at a level three and I want to move to a level four. And, and even that language, when I'm listening to that and talking with the student and and that comes up, maybe there's an element of learning in there, but you're absolutely right that it does still end up with almost the same thing they do with grades where I don't care what I learned. I just care what my grade is. There's a danger of that with, I don't care what I learned. I care where I'm at on the, you know, the learning progression. 
Um, so absolutely. And, and, and that's another reason I would say it's helpful to like assessment reform works best as a school, even better as a district, um, because of that kind of communication and, and changing the culture of grading and assessment. I, we can try to do it on our own, but oftentimes you, you'll end up feeling like you're just banging your head against a wall over and over because the messaging isn't clear to students. And they go from your class where, okay, I have another attempt in learning. I can, I can move on. I don't have to you know, stress about every single score along the way. And then they leave and go to their next class and they're stressed about every single score along the way in that class. And so it just kind of reinforces these beliefs about grades and grading and, and what they mean and how they function. And so I, you know, the, the, the hard answer is there needs to be a huge culture shift in schools around how we view grades, grading, the role of learning in schools. And, you know, it's almost impossible to do on your own. It makes a difference when you're working with the team, but if your whole school is on board, um, I've seen some really cool things happen where a school is consistent with their messaging to the community, and that actually starts to make a difference in how students view grades and the role of learning in schools. You talked about that transformative second, end of second year of teaching where you're like, there's no way another teacher can learn anything about my students and their learning journeys through my grade book. Have you had the opportunity to sit down with teachers who are taking over your students the next year and actually transmit useful data? Yeah. And, and I, I realized that the way our grade book is set up, like when a teacher pulls up a student profile next year, they can't see that information that I really want them to see just because of the nature of the grade book. So there have been times where, you know, especially with students who, if they're, if they end up with a, a decently high grade in the course, but I know they have a, a, like we mentioned, we talked about before, if there's a student that is proficient in every skill, but has a one in one area, you know, if I know the teacher that and our department is huge, so sometimes I don't even know the teacher that has that student the next year. I have had conversations of just like, hey, they're going to present themselves as they know everything. But I want you to know this is something they really struggle with. Or, you know, on the opposite end of this is a student, maybe they had a low grade in the course at the end of the term. And being able to talk to a teacher and say, hey, they're really they just need these couple things. Um, granted, I've only had one class, so it's easier to do that. I won't pretend that with 120 students, you can do that for every student. But it, it is nice just to be able to have, I call it the story of my students learning. Like I like to be able to look at a grade book and see their story. Did they grow? Did they have a specific struggle? Was something going on at this point in their life? And I see that reflected in scores. Um, but even just having that, now I can have that conversation with another teacher. Whereas before, if it was just scores for tasks, I, w I didn't even know how to have that conversation with another teacher aside from saying like, well, they're really good at tests, so they're great there. And I don't know much else to tell you. <laughs> have you seen this implemented in more fact heavy or isolated skills classrooms? I'm thinking of like a science classroom where you know there's one skill set being learned in a unit and then never touched again. Mm -hmm. Or do you just make it more general about being able to do science skills? Yeah, so there's a, a really, actually two really good resources that 
have been helpful for me with this because I will admit, like as an ELA teacher, there there is almost a natural tendency in the concepts that we're talking about that lend themselves well to learning progressions and, and things like that. Um, but there's a book, actually, the, the book that helped all of this make sense for me at first is it's called Grading Smarter, Not Harder by Myron Dweck. And he just, it, that was the first time I feel like so many of the books that I've read are big picture theory. And he like, there were cha a chapter would just be, here's a standard, here's the content I need my students to learn. And here's how I'm breaking it down. And, you know, pictures of this is what my grade book looked like for a unit. And that was one of the things that stood out for me with with his approach is I, I thought that it needed to be, you know, year long or, or term long skills that we're working on all the time. And what I was noticing reading his book is it, it was within units. And like at the end of the unit is where they would almost have that grade conference of how did you do in this unit? Where are you at with this unit? Um, of course, like making sure that they're holding on to it long term, he would talk about, you know, retrieval and things coming up again later on. Um, but that was helpful for me to, to also think about it in terms of it doesn't have to be big scale, like it can be within isolated units. And there's nothing wrong with that necessarily. The, the other resource that is really helpful, and it, it I think only has science, math, social studies, ELA, but Ohio's Department of Education has, I think they call them the Ohio Extended Learning Standards, but there's this whole website and you can click on each of those four content areas. I think there's actually more too, I, I'm missing some, um, but you can click on them and for every grade level, it takes the standard and breaks it down into like, what's the background knowledge the student needs to be able to be successful? What are the terms they need to know? What are the different levels of proficiency? It's really incredible. Like, I feel like it's this hidden secret that is never talked about, but it's fantastic what they've done with it. Um, and it covers K-12, but those two resources, because that is one thing that comes up a lot, especially I've worked with a lot of math teachers that this is a, a hard kind of concept for them because so often it's like, you know, it definitely builds and things like that, but it's like there's this one thing they need to know and it's not necessarily connected to everything else. Or, um, and, and that document, the Ohio Extended Learning Standards, does a really good job breaking all of it down and making it clear of like these are the levels or the, the steps along the way to learning this concept, which is really the whole point of those learning progressions. Moving forward starting uh, a new school year, we're chatting in the summer. What are some goals that you have with your assessment? So one of my big ones is still, and actually you kind of touched on it earlier, to de-emphasize the, the scoring element involved in assessment. Yeah, so I'm reading a book right now called Pointless by Sarah Zerwin. And, and she, I feel like they've just done an incredible job of de-emphasizing the, the point numeric element of grades that, or, or just learning in general that derails that learning process so quickly. And so, you know, that's one of the things that I really want to focus on. As I've used more learning progressions and as I've really worked with those, you know, I, I've still seen students latch on to the levels and the points involved in that. And so I'm, uh, my, my goal moving forward is really how do I take that next step away from grades? I feel like every step along the way has been important, but I'm at a point where I'm, I'm 
I know that grades aren't beneficial to students necessarily. Uh, every year I do something where I survey my students and ask three questions. Do grades help you learn? How do grades make you feel? Why do teachers use grades? And every time I ask it, it's almost horrifying to see the responses. Like, how do grades make you feel? There's just kids that plain write dumb. And like, so I know that when grades are involved, when points are involved, like that is the message that gets sent to students, even if we're doing it unintentionally. So that's one of my goals moving forward is really stepping away um, from points and from that grade element as much as possible in the classroom. And my second goal, and this is something that I think naturally I'm going to have to pick back up, is having been a coach for the last few years and only having one class, part of the reason I want to step back in is I want to make sure that the approach I use for assessment with my one class, it, it can scale up to a full class load. Um, so, so my goal, and this is kind of for myself, is really targeting and being efficient with how assessment and feedback happens in my classroom. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Tyler. You've left me so much to think about. Um, how can listeners find out more about what you're doing or look at examples of what we've talked about today? Probably the easiest way is to reach out on Twitter. Uh, my handle is just at Mr. Underscore Rablin. And actually, I think it's still the pinned tweet. I put a blog post together of every resource that I could share around assessment, walking through my whole process of going from clarifying essential learning all the way down to calculating a final grade for a student. So um, I'd love to connect on Twitter. And then if you need resources, that's a good place to start. And also don't hesitate to ask. I share as much as I can because teachers have enough on their plate already to reinvent the wheel. So uh, that's probably the best way. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. episode will not self-destruct in five seconds, but will remain available on your preferred podcasting platform. Lesson Impossible is proud to be one of the many amazing school rubric podcasts. Links to resources or people we mentioned and information in general about the podcast can be found at lessonimpossible.com. If you enjoy the podcast, you can help other listeners discover it by rating and reviewing on iTunes forwarding it to a colleague, or posting a link in your favorite educational chat. This has been Lesson Impossible, and I was your host, Aviva Levin. 